Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. If you explore for further, you'll find some decidedly colorful saints. A pious Peruvian girl named Rose, who was plagued by her own beauty, but was apparently beloved by parakeets. Uh, Joseph of Cupertino, Italy, who became so ecstatic in prayer that he tended to fly. It actually became a problem. <laughs> Martha was a French saint who tamed this man-eating dragon by prayer and holy water alone. She tamed him. It was the villagers who killed him. And of course, Simon Stylites, who lived atop a pole in the Syrian desert for 37 years to demonstrate his devotion to God. There are, it seems, no end to saints once you start looking. Well, every Friday for the past 15 or 16 years, I've gathered with undergraduates, some of you, for a homemade lunch and for a conversation that we call Vintage. Together we talk about the life story and we read the very words of one vintage Christian each week, one person from this broad company of saints. We've roamed through the words of Mother Teresa, Amanda Berry Smith, Thomas Merton to C.S. Lewis, Flannery O'Connor, and Brother Lawrence. And I've come to truly love these old brothers and sisters of the faith. I introduce them to, as mentors and friends who speak to us across the centuries and into our own lives and struggles and doubts and faith today. And we need these authentic witnesses more than ever. These people fill my new book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. So what makes a saint a saint? Well, this morning, I'd like to play with a definition from the writer James Parker, who recently wrote these words in The Atlantic. <clears throat> One way to understand the saints, those radiant, aberrant beings next to whom the rest of us look so shifty and shoddy, is to imagine them as cutting-edge physicists. Their research, if you like, has led them unblinkingly to conclude that reality is not all what or where or who we think it is. Saints have penetrated the everyday atomic buzz and seen into the essential structures. They have seen, among other things, that the world is hollowed out and illumined by beams of divine love, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and that sanctity, should you desire it, is merely to live in accordance with these elementary principles. So what makes a saint a saint? A saint has seen the everyday atomic buzz, has seen what is there on the surface, obvious to us all. And a saint has seen beyond to the, that essential structure of reality. A saint has lived according with these deeper facts, as, has acted with a view toward what truly is at the core of things. Howard Thurman is such a saint. 
Howard Thurman was an American minister, philosopher, and civil rights activist whose writing influenced Martin Luther King Jr. And what did Howard Thurman see in his time? He was born in 1899, the grandson of a slave. Howard saw racial discrimination and segregations, evils that were legal for most of his life. Even after he'd become renowned as a philosopher and a public leader, Howard Thurman held fast to the faith of his grandmother, a woman who truly believed and lived and moved from the center of a deep personal relationship with Jesus, even as she saw too clearly the brutality of fellow Christians. Howard Thurman's convictions would be challenged during a trip to India in 1935. This was a time when India was still a British colony ruled by whites. As part of a pilgrim of friendship, the first delegation of African Americans to Southeast Asia, Howard was asked to speak widely in defense of Christianity. Now, after one lecture at the University of Colombo, which is now in Sri Lanka, a Hindu lawyer approached him and asked, Dr. Thurman, you have lived in a Christian nation in which you are segregated, lynched, and burned. You will pardon me, sir. I do not wish to seem rude or disrespectful. I think that any black Christian is either a fool or a dupe. Of course, Howard could see the reality, that churning abyss separating white from black, the tra traditional American church that reinforced inequality, but like that cutting-edge physicist, Howard Thurman had a vision that penetrated the everyday buzz of the culture-dominated prejudices of Christianity. He saw more deeply to the inclusive love of that religion of Jesus, as he put it. To his Hindu challenger, Howard Thurman insisted that this religion of Jesus is about a transformative encounter with God that touches all of one's life. There is nothing that is not involved. The true religion of Jesus always takes the side of freedom and justice for all people. Howard Thurman met Gandhi on that trip. It was a world-changing conversation that would sow the seeds of the American Civil Rights Movement. Howard Thurman, the saint, saw essential reality, and he wrote these words. Here we are face to face with perhaps the most daring and revolutionary concept known to humanity, namely that God is not only the creative mind and spirit at the core of the universe, but that he is love. This is the great disclosure, that there is at the heart of life a heart. Howard not only saw this great disclosure, he lived by it. In 1944, he left a secure academic job and established the first racially integrated multicultural congregation in America. And together they embraced this dream of unity in Christ. A second saint who saw what is and yet saw beyond was a German girl named Sophie Scholl. She was born in 1921 she was only 12 years old when Hitler came to power. By the time Sophie reached the University of Munich, a stronghold of Nazi influence, 
she clearly saw what many of her classmates didn't reckon with, the devastating evil that was the Third Reich. Sophie and her brother Hans, also a student at the university, had grown up in a Christian family. They had memorized verses like James chapter 1, verse 22, which says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Their father, Robert, the lone pacifist in their tiny conservative hamlet, taught them and he said, what I want for you is to live in uprightness and freedom of spirit, no matter how difficult that proves to be. In fact, this would cost them everything. Sophie clearly saw that what was right in front of her, she saw it, and yet she saw beyond to the hope and promise of liberation. In a letter to a friend, she wrote, isn't it a tremendous enigma and almost frightening that everything is so beautiful in spite of the terrible things that are going on? Convinced that God would have the last word against violence, Sophie wrote, I will try to take the victor's side. Sophie and her brother Hans and four other friends got the wild idea to form a secret subversive cell that they called the White Rose. Their mission was to shake other young Germans into rejecting the Nazi madness and resist the war. They were armed with only an illegal duplicating machine and a whole lot of nerve. <laughs> At night, they pa painted graffiti on the walls of the, the university, down with Hitler, and they spread anti-Nazi leaflets everywhere. When they were caught by the Gestapo and dragged into the courtroom without a single witness called in their defense, Sophie, Hans, and Christoph, their colleague, remained calm, composed, clear, unflinching as they were condemned to die. The infamous, infamous Nazi judge raged and screamed at the young defendants. He shrieked and roared until his voice broke. Before him, the 21-year-old Sophie broke in, boldly declaring, somebody, after all, had to make a start. What we wrote and said is also believed by many others. They just don't dare to express themselves. Sophie, a saintly physicist, saw what could be and what should be, and she lived in view of that. Her parting words to her cellmate touch our hearts. As she said, such a glorious sunny day and I must go. But how many must die on the battlefields? How many promising young men? What will my death matter if because of our actions, thousands of people will be awakened and stirred to action. Howard Thurman, Sophie Scholl, saints of the most beautiful kind. So what do you and I see before us today? The text of Psalm 46 speaks of our reality even now. The earth gives way. The mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Its waters roar and foam, and mountains quake with their surging. The earth melts. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. There is desolation on the earth. Wars are at hand. 
Where do we go to see and perceive what is beyond this? Is there a deeper, more hopeful reality beyond? Something that we can hold on to and that we can live by today. This morning, we follow along behind the psalmist who shows us more of these essential structures of reality, the ultimate story of our salvation. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is with her and she will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. God lifts up God's voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. May we perceive that this world is hollowed out and illuminated by the beams of divine love, that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, and that sanctity, should you and should I desire it, is nothing more than to live in accordance with these elementary facts. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.